I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Coming up on today's podcast, we have comedian Alice Fraser introducing me to a world of romance I know little about. Then Rove and I will discuss the kind of romance I do understand, the doomed love of two superheroes. My name is Justin Hamilton and I'm wistfully dreaming of when we'll meet again on Big Squid. Thanks for joining me today. We have a really fun and interesting chat with Alice Fraser, who is going to introduce me to a genre I know little about. Watch out. It's a little bit romantic and fascinating as well. It's really interesting when someone brings up something that you kind of feel like you know a little bit about, but when someone asks you to describe it, you have to really think. So anyway, Alice is always great and she's fantastic as per usual on this podcast. And Rove and I, we have a pretty in-depth chat about the finale of WandaVision, a little bit more in-depth from how we felt about it rather than picking out little Easter eggs, etc. But it was a fascinating ending, and I think WandaVision was a success. I'm glad that it ended up being the first cab off the rank for Phase 4, I guess, of the Marvel Universe. Uh, It wasn't meant to be but I think it's turned out to be a real good win for them. Before we go any further, just a heads up about our live show at Giant Dwarf. We were meant to be doing it on the weekend of the 25th, but there's just been a few snafus behind the scenes. Nothing really bad, just not even really worthwhile going into. These things just kind of happen. So we're looking to move it earlier to the 18th of April. So... As I said, nothing major. These things happen. I just wanted to give you a heads up so you can keep an eye out for our next live show. We're going to really roll the dice on this one as well with the theme for the night being, can we still enjoy it? 
I think this is a really interesting topic and it's just so hard to discuss it out there in the world, as it were. And I wanted to discuss this idea properly in a friendly environment that will be full of people who understand that it's a tricky subject and, you know, you want to curate who you have on stage and who you have in the crowd and I know you guys are smart and you understand all the different conundrums that can come at this for all sorts of different artists as well. So we're not going to do this on social media. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Could you imagine the free-for-all on social media? He said, she said type of discussion. But this will hopefully be a nuanced exchange of ideas that at some point we'll probably have some dumb jokes to break the tension. It sounds like a big squid show. I'm looking forward to this, especially since the reason this podcast exists is to celebrate all manner of art and entertainment. So let's see what our cutoff points are for problematic artists. Also, a reminder that over at my site, justinhamilton.com.au, you can find a new blog called Universal Eye. It's a new Dispatches from the Fury Road. It's about a three-minute read about a birthday party I attended after a gig recently. That's all I'll say. So go and check that out. I think you'll enjoy that and the other blogs and short stories at the site. You can comment on the pages there. Or if you feel like coming over to Facebook, you can write to us at our open page or our secret squirrel page. That It's not that secret. Anyone can join. It's just a place for spoiler-free chats about things like WandaVision. And with that in mind, let's get right into it now. This is chaos magic, Wanda. That makes you... Scarlet Witch. This is our help. Then let's fight for it. It's time for the showdown, the witchy poo matchup that is Marvel's equivalent of Federer versus Nadal, Ali versus Foreman, and Greta Thunberg versus every geriatric male politician in the world. Wanda versus Agatha is perfect as we have unbridled power up against centuries of witchcraft study. And early on, Wanda realises she might be slightly out of her depth. In the undercard, we have colourful vision versus albino vision and a good old-fashioned fistfight that delightfully segues into the ship of Theseus' thought experiment. This was the best of both worlds with vision. I've always loved his phasing powers. I've always thought that they look cool in the comics and... You know, they've looked kind of cool in the movies, but there's something creepy about it as well. And I I don't really know if people have played up to it as much as I would like. Like, you you feel like if you saw that in the real world, you'd be like, oh, my God, like, what, what was that about? So seeing him being able to unleash this power on himself, as it were, it was just great. And it was really fun to watch. It was an exciting, clear action scenes, which sometimes superhero movies can get a bit cluttered and you think, ah, I don't quite understand what's happening. But this was this was nice. But I also like that he had to rely on smarts. It helps exemplify why Vision is such a great character. And I love that in the end, Albino Vision flies away, uncertain of the certainty that he's been asked to contemplate. Monica manages to escape the powerful Pietro by releasing him from Wanda's magic and reverting him back to Ralph. An actor who hopes this doesn't ruin his chances of a starring role in the future. Namely, 
one of the Marvel movies. <laughs> We've been on a nice journey with Monica, and when she throws herself in front of the bullets to save the boys, it is important to remember she does this without knowing if her nascent powers can save her as well. We've known throughout the latter half of this series that Wanda is in pain and that Westview is her way of dealing with her grief. Unfortunately, this hasn't been workshopped with the town, and all of the town folk under her thrall appear to have suffered greatly as well. That is the thing about grief. It ripples out and affects everyone around you, whether you mean to or not. Their mistrust at the end of the episode is earned. Why would you trust Wanda, even if you did understand why this all happened? The way they look at her is also the way that people look at mutants in the comics. So while there were no cameos from the FU X-Men, maybe this is a harbinger for what is to come. In the end, Wanda knows that to defeat Agatha, she needs to give up her world in Westview. As the army comes storming in, as the people in the town begin to shake off her magic, as Agatha continues to feed, there is only one way forward, and she has to sacrifice the happiness she has found here. She has to give it up, though, because it's built on a lie, a lie that she has told herself. In the end, I was relieved that we didn't get a Mephisto reveal, a Doctor Strange flyby, or a Reed Richards cameo as the finale just didn't have enough room for extra characters. As it was, there was a flash of Darcy, a taste of Wu, and a shrug of the shoulders reveal of Pietro. I wasn't even certain of Agatha's motivation, other than she was intrigued by the power Wanda was exhibiting and wanted to feed on it. In hindsight, I would have loved the reveal to have occurred earlier, while still exploring the TV tropes and a more subtle battle of wills. I would have loved more Monica and Wanda time together so we could see both women really grow to understand each other. But even though WandaVision at times was a little bit flawed, it's also important to remember that this is a show that kids will watch. And for a generation that has never heard of the X-Files or Twin Peaks or The Singing Detective, this would have been their first entry point into a postmodern storyline that had fun deconstructing the form of both TV and the Marvel Universe. The main success of the series was that we now have a better grasp of Wanda and Vision. We emotionally relate to their love for one another. All the highlights of the finale for me were the small moments. It was the way Vision just says, goodnight chaps, in a stiff upper lip way, knowing that he is not only saying goodbye to these children, but also to his life itself. It doesn't matter if it is a fake world. They live there and therefore it means everything to them. The horror of Wanda watching her family dissolve reflects the fear that she experienced when Thanos snapped his fingers. The family working as a unit was not only thrilling, but shows us that there is a place in the Marvel Universe for heroes that are family, like the Fantastic Four. Both actors were tremendous in their roles, with Paul Bettany constantly portraying a wide range of emotions while dressed as an android. And Elizabeth Olsen was fantastic portraying the fear and pain that Wanda endured throughout the series, and also the love for those who are just beyond her reach. And once again, thinking about kids watching this show, there were touches of poetry with lines like, what is grief but love persevering? And finishing with, We have said goodbye before, so it stands to reason we'll say hello again. It is easy to be cynical about these types of moments in superhero movies, but the reason they resonate is because deep down we wish for these moments in our real lives, the opportunity to greet friends and family who are no longer with us and continue to share our grand adventures. 
If those moments inspire young people to explore those emotions, either within themselves or in other forms of entertainment and literature, I would consider WandaVision a wonderful success. There's more thoughts to come, so let's bring in Rove. I don't know if you've noticed this online, but there seems to be this weird vibe with some people upset that their predictions didn't come true. And then there's the people who are kind of getting off on people's predictions being wrong. And have people just forgot that speculating between episodes is just fun and it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong? Isn't that interesting? I wonder if that is because the idea of a week-to-week slow burn of a show is actually, for a lot of people, a, a, a very new experience. For we wizened old veterans, Justin... Uh, that's how it's done. That's, it was always, you know, you, you watch the episode, you dissect it, you think about it, you speculate, you talk to other human beings about it, and then you come back the next week. I think for the majority of people that would be watching this, because it is through a streaming service, they're probably very used to just jumping straight into the next episode. And maybe that idea of... Um, speculating about what happens next, they feel that that should have some kind of payback at the end of it, rather than sometimes that's it's just the fun of the the guessing and the detective work that just makes your brain think creatively. It's not about whether you get something back from it or not. Yeah, like part of the fun was coming up with crazy ideas that. <laughs> Agatha was talking about Ray Fiennes. <laughs> like, who cares if that's not true? And that, to me, was the greatest thing. And and then the payoff was, no, the um, real-world Westview guy who was playing the role of Pietro in Wanda's Hex, his name was Ralph on his headshot. So that was, that was it. Look, I will say that, that was a mildly disappointing reveal. That was, that um, was my one... Uh, thing that I wasn't into. Not that he wasn't someone... Like, not that he wasn't Pietro from the X-Men movies, but, you know, with Chekhov's gun, if you put a gun there in the first act, it has to be used in the third. It felt like they put in Chekhov's gun, and then when we went to it later, they said, oh, no, it's just a flower. And you're like, oh, like, I don't mind that it's not a gun per se, like it could have been a water pistol or something like that. But to to go to the trouble of setting that up, that was the one mild misstep for me because I didn't need it to be Pietro. I just, you have deliberately kind of set something up that hasn't really paid off. It feels a little bit like, ah, that's what it was. And still feels like mm, that doesn't make sense to me it doesn't connect with the idea of her saying her husband her husband her husband the whole time only for it to be a character that we only kind of met halfway through who isn't an older character that could have played that role in the Westview WandaVision show so it's also that part of it of of like, I don't know if she said my brother or my son or was even just that connection to say husband, you just picture a certain person. 
and then, which is fine if then the payoff is something you weren't expecting. But yeah, I just, I felt I would have been in many ways happier and probably more satisfied to go, oh no, she really just was making it up as part of her character backstory and we never really got a Ralph reveal rather than what felt like a bit of a, a rushed, oh, we just need to shove this in to have some sort of Ralph connection at the end. Which is what it felt like. So, yeah, I didn't. I didn't need to know that 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 character's backstory of of who the guy was who was playing Pietro. As yeah, well. yeah. That 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 was kind of a mild misstep, and there wasn't enough Darcy either. They were the two little bits that I went. Oh my gosh, that was that was stunning. How little of Darcy there was. I mean, you know, cash that check, girl. There's, you know. Cats, she would have had a day on set at most, right? And she's she gets the she gets the paid for being in that episode for royalty checks. That's great, but yeah, that was uh, quite surprising. And even at the end, she wasn't even seen as in the uh, post or mid credits scene. Wasn't even seen as part of the sort of cleanup crew. Really, it was just it was just Jimmy. Yeah, it was like, oh no, she's gone. Oh, okay, no worries. Yeah. All right. right. Maybe she got COVID right at the end. Unless unless Denning's actually had other things to do, which is perfectly reasonable. Which is perfectly reasonable. But just from a storytelling perspective, you'd had so much fun with her. You wanted a little bit more. Uh, It's good to get the gripes out the way. I think the gripes are pretty small uh, in in the grand scheme of things. I'm curious to know what was your uh, favourite scene or were there a couple of favourite scenes that you had? Oh, I think um, the moment where the family were all huddled together and and breaking off to tackle their various um, foes and Wanda turns to the kids and she says, you guys handle the military. (laughs) I love that. Uh, And just seeing her take off and uh, at, at... firing on all cylinders with Agatha, there is something that really gets me going uh, creatively. I get so fulfilled by it when you see a nice, beautiful, drawn-out hero's journey. So the fact that we, you know, not even just in this show alone, but one has been cropping up. I keep looking back and forgetting how many uh, you know, like Captain America, she's been in uh, how many other movies she has actually been in just as a peripheral character that you weren't probably aware of. And even at the start of this show, probably most people like myself understood and, and, and connected with the Vision character more than the Wanda character. And she's got cool powers, never really explained, but as this show has progressed, you've just seen them build and build and build to now where she here she is, at the, now the, the height of her powers, it's kind of like what makes Harry Potter work. It's what makes you know, Luke Skywalker. It's what makes Dione's Targaryen in Game of Thrones, these characters that you're watching them slowly develop their powers and their confidence and they have their, their losses along the way and they learn their lessons and then right at the end they're up against the ultimate foe 
who now they have the confidence to know that they can compete with and you just see them go at it. 11 in Stranger Things, same, that, that's, that sort of idea where suddenly you just see them lifting up stuff and throwing things and it's all, you know, zap, pow. But because they haven't just arrived like that, sometimes like, that can be an issue with things like a character like Superman who literally crash lands as a baby with superpowers. We don't, there's no real journey along the way as you see any kind of training or learning or things like that. And so to me, seeing that scene was, I just devoured it. It looked spectacular. They were holding back on all of that stuff till the final episode and it just, to me, landed perfectly. I'd love to know what the budget was for that as a TV series because it looked expensive. (laughs) Yeah, I was at times slightly taken out of it because I was going, oh, that's the Warner Brothers lot because I used to work on the Warner Brothers lot. I'm like, oh, I know that. I know that. I've been there. Um, and, uh, oh, okay, that's got a different lick of paint on it, but I know, I know that little area. Um, but, yeah, it looked, it looked money, and a lot of it as well. It just looked like they were on the lot with um, and obviously a lot of wire work, but, but seemingly, to me, very little... Um, uh, green screen it seemed like most of it was done in the moment apart from what you would add from a special effects point of view otherwise it seemed like yeah they were they just would have had wires as everyone's flying around which is really cool and they've just announced that they've got their behind the scenes uh, making of series that's coming in a couple of weeks so that's going to be great yeah i always oscillate between loving those things and then finding when i go back and watch it a little bit of the magic's taken. That happened to me with the with the Bourne movies when they showed you how they did the car chases. And I just had an idea of how they worked. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, it's still good. But I kind of wish I hadn't known that. Well, I watch every episode of The Mandalorian now with the same thing of trying to pick where does the set stop and the wall of the um, the volume, as they call it, um, the fully interactive screen, uh, where does that start? It's great that now I have a, a newfound respect for a show that I thought was all shot on green screen, and it's great to appreciate how they put it together. But, yeah, I, I am seeing if I can be the clever clever bum to go, oh, I can spot, there it is. Oh, they can walk as far as that rock and then the rest is a screen. When I'm probably wrong anyway. Yeah. The, I love the uh, denouement between albino vision and our vision and I love that it came down to uh, mm. a philosophical debate and I wonder where does where does albino vision go from here does he now go off and become the real vision because he's going to have the specific memories up until a certain point I feel in this kind of world there's always that that way of getting a character back in. It's it's so easily done in a world where there are superpowers. Uh, there are the people that have superpowers either because it's, they've been given to them or, or some experiment or a space rock has done it or they are aliens from outer space that have brought them with them. So the idea that, yeah, we can find a way to turn white vision into regular vision I think is where we will head with that. Um, he's essentially that now, but just in the white shell. He just needs to have a bit more of the emotion, I suppose, put in. But I feel like that's a very 
easy step wonder at the end saying that part of the milestone in vision is was from her so the idea that you know, let's not let's not deny the fact that they might go with, you know, love can save the day and if they meet again and she can see that glimmer of him, something she does or they kiss or embrace or she touches his forehead and boom, he, he just explodes back to colour. I can see that happening and I'm perfectly fine with it. I think people would probably want that too, that, okay, we've, we've explained how, okay, this wasn't the real vision, but we'll bring him back for you, so don't panic. It's also the same with the boys, with uh, with the twins. Like we obviously hear them calling out at some point, and we would otherwise have thought that they were gone. So how does that happen as well? Um, so I'm sure all that will be explained. I won't understand it, and I won't. Care. No, I'm just not. As long as it's uh, done <laughs> in an entertaining way. Where do you think uh, Wanda's story goes from here? Does she go into being the villain of Doctor Strange 2 or does she unleash something because now she's actually studying to use her powers but she's using the one book that maybe she shouldn't be using yes and obviously reading it in the same way that he would do his reading as as we all would love to do where you just sort of have a facsimile of yourself doing all the research (laughs) while you go off and eat chips in my case or hers have a cup of tea but uh, I there was the there was the line from Agnes about how she, how Wanda is is more potentially more powerful than uh, Doctor Strange, so that would be uh, an interesting dynamic. It, I I see it as just being there will be some friction between the two of them at the start of things, um, but I I don't know that she's the villain. I I feel that they would need to be going somewhere else with it. I don't think anyone would be able to to feel that she is the villain like we were talking about last week all that she has been through as much as all when everyone was getting mad at her when she's leaving the town and staring at her i still felt like no but it's not none of this is her fault it's all it's all fine um i feel very sympathetic towards her so yeah, I, I, can't, I can't imagine her being a villain at all. I just I just don't see that. It would be it would be a, a very bad decision to say. Yeah, I think her. so too. I like the idea of her maybe unleashing something that is going to take their combined powers. And also, what might be fun is because Marvel likes to think you know two or three steps ahead. Maybe she goes on to become Doctor Strange's apprentice. So when Benedict Cumberbatch is done with the role she takes over as the new Sorcerer Supreme because Elizabeth Olsen is still, you know, really young. So she could have, if she wanted to, she could have another 12, 15 years in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, it's always interesting because it's like, and Benedict Cumberbatch is quite clearly um, a, a very established actor who would have a lot of other roles that are offered to him uh, to the point where I don't know that he how much he would be willing to just sign on to, uh, to to a role like this where you have to always be there for them and not just for, for every Doctor Strange movie that happens every other year, but there's Avengers films and crossovers galore in this universe. So it really is a, a commitment. And I'm sure he has a lot of other things he would be asked to do and probably like to do. He's not... You know, he's not just a, an action hero guy. So um, so it wouldn't surprise me if he's, he 
doesn't necessarily stay in the role that long. And it would be a great idea to then have her progress to be to be the next in line. Um, but, yeah, again, I straight away from this just went, I'm excited to see where she goes next. If there was a film dedicated to her, I would watch it. It's it's great. Yeah. Really great. Yeah, she's been fantastic as well. And that last costume was, well, you've really managed to make what looked a little bit silly in the comics in the 60s look fantastic in 2021. Yeah. Can I point out a couple of other little things that I enjoyed? Oh, yeah, for sure. There, um, as Agatha was doing all her powers, the black fingers, I just, I don't know who came up with that idea, but it was just a little touch that I thought was really, really cool. And um, when uh, Tommy, as Speed, is zipping around and uh, stopping all the all the sword military guys and he, he zips back to Billy and he's got the cap and sunglasses on, which is reminiscent of what Quicksilver did in the X-Men movie. So we're seeing it from the other point of view. We don't see the slow-mo of him walking through. We just see the finished result and he just comes back with a cap on. I thought it was a wonderful little nod. And, and I don't know, things like that just tickle yeah. me. Yeah, I thought those kids were really good. I'm, I'm totally up for a young justice down the track, you know, bringing in Patriot and Hulkling and, you know, you're going to get Kate Bishop in the Hawkeye series. So having a, a young Avengers would be a lot of fun, I think. And they're bringing in Kang into Ant-Man as well. So that allows you to use Iron yeah. Lad too. And isn't it incredible how all of this is possible? I never would have thought otherwise that any of it was, but, you know, there's so many characters that they keep bringing out that are never meant to work and work to the point where they're now, you know, A tier that you just go, yeah, anything. Like who would have thought, you know, Rocky the Raccoon would be something that would be a success story. You know, if that happens, then anything's possible. Yeah, like literally a character that Bill Mantlo came up with off the back of a Beatles song and is now one of the most popular characters in mainstream movies. Can Howard the Duck be saved? Well, you know, we've had that little taste of him in Guardians of the Galaxy. Exactly. They're, they're trying. So uh, the f- final <laughs> question for you, we have uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier coming up, which has been described as a long movie, which always annoys me because when I watch a TV TV series, I want it to be a TV series. I don't want it to be a long movie because yes. often that implies there's, you, you know, when they make a long movie or they call it that, sometimes the only impetus to watch the next episode is that there's a next episode rather than what this was, which gave you reasons outside of, you know, you, you wanted to know what happened next. So, so I'm hoping that that's just a bad description. But what are you hoping for from uh, this next Marvel series, especially off the back of WandaVision? I think same thing. I would love to just see um, some real depth in, in the backstories of the characters that just really makes you connect with them. Uh, I don't see that we will have the wonderful mysterious, you know, questions that have to be answered and and mysteries that have to be solved. I think maybe in saying it's like a long movie, it's just their way of saying, oh, it's just going to go week to week. There's nothing, there's no Easter eggs. There's no, you know, secret villains hiding in plain sight. It's just going to be heroes versus villains. Um, I'm also, you know, I'm also very aware that this was, 
shot or started before one division this was meant to come first and obviously because of covid it stalled them and one division was moved to the front which i think is going to play out better for them because that's that's got my interest where maybe a falcon and winter soldier may not have on its own so i'm honestly just going to be sitting back and enjoying uh what comes with it um and so, so that anything other than that will be a great surprise. But I'm not expecting that we'll be di- dissecting commercials within the world that, that they are living in. And as always, I'm just going to be looking for where is what what is this setting up for the future? Because everything, everything in this world always does. All I'm really hoping for is tonally I'd like it to be the Winter Soldier kind of vibe maybe civil war i just like that captain america vibe and if they can kind of continue it with these two characters vying over the mantle and it looks like there's going to be a a u.s agent aspect to it and they're bringing back agent 13 so if it's a lot of that vibe and people just kicking ass and a a little bit jason bourne-ish or bondish or whatever I'm, i'm up for that i'm totally up for that yeah I think, and and, that, and I think some of that big budget stuff that we saw in this final episode of WandaVision, a bit more of that, you know, peppered through this one would be great. I'd be all for that. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, well, thanks for helping us out with WandaVision, and we'll we'll see what happens with the next one. We'll have to record those conversations as well. As I said, it's all content. Exactly. You know that's going to happen. We're going to talk about it anyway. Yeah. Why? Why not have microphones? Thanks, mate. <laughs> Okie dokie, artichokey. <laughs> One of the standouts of our last live Big Squid was Alice Fraser, who has carved herself a remarkable career that reaches all over the world. One of the hardest working comedians on the tour, Alice continues to define her voice and expand her range with each subsequent show and podcast that she produces. This interview with Alice is very much a perfect representation of the woman. Funny, thoughtful and surprising. I hope you enjoy this catch up as much as I enjoyed recording it. All right, let's get to it. Alice and I were making the uh, fatal podcast error of having a really good chat and then thinking, oh, at some point we should press record. So we are just going to get straight into where we left off. And you were saying that last year you were making a daily satirical podcast. Is that Daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate dimension. Wow. So it was like sci-fi but news satire and it was like a ridiculous project. And so... (laughs) It was called the the last post, and I was the only writer, and I was the presenter, and I had guests. So I ended up running about sixty hours of comedy last year. Yeah, wow. And you were just saying you don't like to praise your guests and do the introduction in front of them because it makes them feel awkward. And I am currently, and it's February now. I'm still in a phase of like having completely lost my imposter syndrome. Right. Because I did 366 days worth of content last year yeah. and it was solid. Like, it wasn't all brilliant, but it's like, it's fucking hard work. Like, it was yeah. a really hard task and I did it. Yes. And, like, I've spent my whole life thinking, I'm not naturally funny. I don't really belong here. There's heaps of people who are more talented than I am and all those things are true. But I fucking did this thing that I don't think many other people could have done. Right. And I'm feeling like really confident. Yeah. <laughs> like- so, you're, what you're saying is. Like, don't praise me when I'm not around. I'm, I'm yeah, up for this. Yeah, I'm eating it up. Like, how dare you? 
make me have to listen to this podcast I'll when it comes I'll correct you out. and tell you that it's, you should be giving me more praise. <laughs> Why aren't you talking me up enough? That would actually be... Uh, a relief. I've had too many podcasts uh, where you're saying nice stuff and then you just get the, oh, here we go, oh, push back, oh, no, nah, that's not right, oh, and it's like... Uh, yeah, that's also a very Australian thing, though. It, yeah, it really is. I'm curious about the uh, imposter syndrome uh, thing that you just said, which is, did you, and there's a reason I'm asking this, but did you have that when you first started or did that develop at some point in your career where because you know when you first start you're a little bit like well everyone's great because everyone's been doing it longer than you and so you I, I feel like you don't really worry about that kind of stuff and then and then the, the reason I ask is is that I think there is there are certain places in Australia that are like the scenes are like viruses and if you catch it it it's just a it's a little meme here it's like a little chat here it's a little comment here and they all kind of build up and they can build these terrible uh, aspects of your personality that you never bought into but you somehow realize that you've accidentally subscribed to yeah i think you're very much shaped by the people you keep company with yeah like we are the sum of our whatever it is five best friends or something and so you know it actually you know it was one of my big kind of things is to kind be careful about the people you end up hanging around yeah. because they influence you. Even if it's in reaction against them, even if you don't like them, then you shape yourself against them, but but they set the terms. Yes. You know, like, uh, so I think, I don't know, when I came into the scene, I came in um, very uh, confident in my lack of ability. Right. So you weren't kidding yourself. I, w- I wasn't. I yeah. did it as an interesting experiment in failure because I knew I wasn't naturally funny and I, I was always a weirdo at school. I was always an outsider. I never expected to be welcomed in or belong. I still don't ever expect people to want to talk to me. I have that slightly dialed up fear of rejection where I'm just like, oh, I guess it doesn't matter. I don't care if they don't like me. Um and then, like, the process of getting better through failure became really addictive to me because in my outside life, outside of comedy, I always had to be perfect and hold it together and give this impression of being, you know, the good daughter and looking after my mum and, and, and not rocking the boat and, and ticking all the boxes. And, and so comedy was this space that I had done as, like a, like, a social experiment on myself to see if I could fail and enjoy failing. And it turned out that it's the one thing I love the most in the world. <laughs> Is like that process of iteration and, and, and improvement through failure. That's exactly how this is going to sound weird. I've only ever played golf once. I've never understood people <laughs> liking golf. I went out with a friend, played it once. I hit one ball mildly better than all of the others that I shanked left, right and centre. And that one mild improvement was enough for me to go... This is dangerous. Never coming back. Never coming back because all it takes is oh, a little bit of improvement there, a little yeah, bit yeah, of improvement yeah. there, and then suddenly I'm out in a thunderstorm trying to be 
some guy who understands what par means. I never want to heckle anybody except when I'm running past the golf course. <laughs> really? There's something about old men playing golf that I do, and I don't, but I just want to be like, oh yeah, hit it, man. I don't know why. Yeah. I just want to disrupt their <laughs> smug little bubble world. Or oh. there's something about it I find it brings out the worst in me. I love that so much because you are unfailingly one of the top three polite people I know, and I love that there's a little mild <laughs> kryptonite as you yeah. go past a golf course. I'm going to let that old bastard really know how I feel about this shit. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, it's my Achilles heel. I just want to be mean to them. Yeah, it's good. It makes you human. It's like, oh, thank goodness for that. The So you started and so you weren't necessarily worried about things not going completely how you wanted them to and you obviously had those little wins as you go along that keep you in. But, uh, you know, so the the sense of not really belonging, was that was that a, a particular scene? Like, we don't have to name the scene, but was it a particular scene or was it a particular group or was that something that you carried over from high school maybe? I think I brought it with me, but I think... So I think the Sydney comedy scene, when I entered it had some cliques yeah but was scattered enough sydney is scattered enough geographically and i found this in london as well that you end up working with a lot of different people you're not necessarily just working with your friends um and i think melbourne has it slightly more where people will work with their friends and they'll book their friends and they'll they'll all sort of work in the same rooms you have closer knit groups Uh, And I found in Sydney you had cliques, but it didn't really necessarily matter because you were always on a bill with someone and you had to get on with them backstage. Yeah. Uh, So the other thing was that when I started comedy, my mum was sick, so I didn't really hang out that much. I would come in and I'd do my set and I'd watch other people. I'd watch until the end of the night because I wanted to learn and I was interested in that. So I'd hang out backstage and talk backstage during the break and then I'd watch the show and then I'd leave I wouldn't hang out and drink afterwards um so I think that was partly because I had to do that for family reasons but also partly a way of protecting myself against rejection right of just like sorry gotta go you can't (laughs) you can't get me that's interesting that seems like such a bygone era thing to hear I hung around because I wanted to learn like I did a gig a few months ago where Every act that was on sat out the back talking really loudly, like you could hear it in the room while the show was going on, and I was headlining, and I went down to watch from the start because I'd never been there before, and I liked the MC, but the gig was a struggle. Mm. And it's interesting, the knee-jerk reaction of 90% of the acts was to riff on the show not going well rather than trying to make it go well. And each one got off having not watched who'd been on before, made the same mistakes, did the same thing, left, and on the way out said, this gig is impossible. And then I went out and killed and got, like, two applause breaks. And I'm not telling you that I did anything special. I just did jokes. You just paid attention. Yeah, and I just saw the way the night was going. And if you just kind of went up there and did your thing, the audience was really up for it. But because nobody was watching... They just didn't have a, an idea of, oh, maybe if a joke doesn't go quite as... Like, if one doesn't land how I want it to land, 
that's not failure. That joke just didn't land. And That's information. Yeah, just go to the next that's joke. That's that Edison light bulb thing. That's not how to make a light bulb. Good info point. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you just, you don't have to stop and, oh, yeah, no, that joke usually goes well with the, oh, here we go. You're a little bit politically correct. Oh, you know, all well, this. Well, I mean, look, it's... It- not not to make the well i mean to make the well worn analogy with 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 sex if you're having sex with a new person and yeah. you try something that worked with your old lover yeah. and it doesn't work yeah. you smoothly move on to yeah. an- and try another thing you don't yeah. go oh that always worked with linda like yeah I can't believe you flinched when my finger went there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you don't draw attention to it. You don't spoil yeah. the mood. You just try something else. By the way, that line is for men and women to say. And uh... <laughs> and sometimes you just got to do your time and get out. And yeah. other times you got to get off the fucking stage. Yeah, keep an eye on the line. Because you're in trouble. <laughs> I better wrap things up. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's funny. So the reason when you said that, that really stood out to me because... So I've been seeing the uh, same therapist for five years. Therapy, what? Nah, it's good. And she's great. And uh, I just thought of a joke the other day about polyamory. Right. Which is like, I need staff to help me manage my relationship with myself. Right. Let alone one other person. (laughs) Let alone, like, the admin of, like... Yeah, a whole team. (laughs) You need a support team, man. Anyway, carry Um, on. I would... uh, I might inadvertently have a team, but there's only one I pay for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's my a co-op. It's a co-op. Yeah, my manager might be thinking, hang on a sec, you should be charging, <laughs> uh, paying me a lot more. But the it was funny. It was some of the things that... Because I found uh, quarantine last year in, in many ways to be really freeing. Well, of course, there were stresses and, of course, there were anxieties and all of that kind of stuff. But it was also a real moment to let all those ideas of self dissipate mm. and through talking to her about some stuff and then I've had like really like my dreaming everyone on this podcast has heard me talk about this but my dreams oscillate from surreal like one night when I was putting on a new kids on the block reunion show and my ex and her sister turned up and I was panicking because the advertising was slightly wrong I only had Donnie <laughs> And I was scared that it was going to be awful and he came out and killed <laughs> and it was a good dream and I woke up. But I've also had memory dreams. And one of the memory dreams I had was from 13 years of living in Melbourne where, you know, friends that I would consider good friends, their thing was for 13 years they would make fun of me for liking stuff. Oh, here we go. Another movie he loves. Oh, don't say anything bad about that album. He loves that album. And that was an ongoing thing and I had this dream of someone making fun of me for enjoying a moment at a concert and that kicked off all these other memories and what it it was a really weird thing to say about yourself because I'm sure people looking from the outside would go yeah but it was like I'm not cynical I've never been cynical I've never been actually pessimistic or anything and I think all of those comments over time kind of created a veneer around me that stopped me from being potentially the best version of myself. And it's so that's why when I hear things like that, it's like, oh, where did that come from? Where do you think it came from? How long do you think you had it before you could push through it? It's incredibly 
It's sort of depressing sometimes when you look back and find the ingredients of your recipe right. <laughs> because it makes you feel predictable. It makes right. you feel like, oh, anyone else, if they had those same ingredients, would have turned out like me, which may or may not be true. Um, I think the, the reality is that the ingredients are so specific that there, there will be no one who ends up like you. But it is always interesting to go, oh, that was that thing. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And I'm currently, I'm writing a, a pilot uh, based on Savage, which is my special oh, yeah. that's on Amazon yeah. Prime. Uh, actually, the opening scene is set backstage at the shelf. Uh, oh, right. Which is where I got the phone call from my dad. Oh, my God. Um, and you were there. and yes. And I'm sort of having to write all these scenes and, like, unpack these things and write them down and write myself as a character which so when they approached me to write this I was like I can't do it because they're, they're you know they're thinking Fleabag they're thinking uh Mae Martin's show this you know central auteur playing the character but I'm not actually a character in my stand-up right like my my stand-up is very rarely oh what do I like like you you see me through what I'm looking at <laughs> I did have a vision of you doing a show like that and I think I would be, I would be into that actually uh, by the way just for uh, people listening uh, you got the phone call from your dad about about my mum having cancer yeah and I got the phone call uh, about my mum having terminal cancer also at your house yeah um, it was very odd so don't answer your phone after at this the, podcast at that time I think we were like fairly good work colleague friends but yeah. we weren't close friends and it was very strange because you know all of a sudden you had to be there through the two worst phone calls of my whole life yeah yeah full on right yeah I think uh, I don't know I think we were pals then I think by the shelf. Yeah, um, yeah, we were, yeah. look, we were friends, but yeah. we weren't like let me weep on your shoulder, friends. <laughs> well, yet, yeah, well, we, start, then, we became fr- that level of friends that night. Yeah, it turns out you can uh, make a jump start on that kind of stuff. What a the, the fascinating thing about performing is the things that you're enduring behind the scenes and experiencing, and then you can go on stage, and then that can be this weird limbo where you can just be a different facet of yourself or you can just lean into uh, a a part of your personality and you can hide there for a moment and it's such a relief yeah like people often ask me oh you know you've done gigs when you've been really sad about certain things or you've had some bad news about something how do you do it and it's like because that's that's safe like that is a good spot where nothing exists in the real world until I choose to get back to it yeah and it's not a lie I think that's one of the things that I I find sort of worth emphasizing about like on stage personas Mm. like unless it is a lie there's plenty of people who play character characters on stage but it's it's just you you're choosing to focus your attention on a particular thing yeah that's my current obsession is like attention and proportion yeah so many of the arguments that you see happening online are not because people are working with different facts right per se often they'll acknowledge that the other person has some valid points yeah but it's how much that point takes up of your vision how important it is how much how much emphasis should be given to it yeah you know i think for example, I can't think. Of, I can't think of one that's not too contentious that it would start its own discussion. But let's just go hardcore. Let's talk about racism. I think right. everyone would acknowledge that there is such a thing as racism, yeah, and that it exists. So, if if we were talking about this as font size, yeah, at this precise moment, there would be people who see Black Lives Matter as size twenty six font in Helvetica, yeah, and then they would see 
uh, in size eight Ariel Aboriginal lives. Yep. Yes. And vice versa. And yes. and that there is this like the emphasis and proportion on these things is what makes the massivest difference. That 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 how much and how much explanatory power you give it. And this is a tricky one. I'll go with sexism because it's something that I have an experience of. Backstage. What? Sorry. <laughs> if somebody's an asshole to me. Yeah. I never know if it's because they're annoyed with me, Alice, a person, because they're grumpy in themselves, or it might be that they're sexist. Sexism might play a role. And depending on how big f- feminism is in my head at that moment, how big sexism is in my head at the moment... I'll assume that it's sexist or I won't assume that it's sexist. How much explanatory power does sexism have in any given instance of assholery? Right. Is very difficult to know. Sometimes, you know, you, and you hear this in this discussions where people are like, oh, he's just an asshole. That's just how he is. He's not being sexist. He's, he's just being a jerk. Right. And you're like, but there's so many people who are sexist to me and he was like jerky in a kind of sexisty way, but you can't, you can never really know. Right. And, so all and, of that stuff is, yeah, and, I, I don't have any answers. But. No, but also what's fascinating about that is that's only two, like that's only a part of you. And then there's, then there's a part of you that is having a good self-esteem day and you just go, hey, he's just an arsehole. Yeah. And you, you don't think anything more yeah. of it or, uh, or there's the analytical side of you that's prominent and you look and you go i bet he's having a bad day i'll just avoid him or sometimes it's easier to assume that someone's being sexist rather than to think maybe i've done something wrong because it justifies what you're feeling at that yeah because he's been an asshole to me and i don't have to think about it he's just a sexist asshole i don't have to consider what he said yeah sometimes that is the correct response and sometimes it's not but it all of that stuff is yeah sorry that's the thing that i'm really interested in at the moment it it is fascinating and it's also the mistake that uh you know that comes with applying titles or thoughts or opinions that are blanketed uh, across a, a myriad type of person because there is the person who is a little bit sexist but is just a bit of a jerk and is not important and it's it's inconsequential and then there's the person who is dangerous with it and you can't to draw a line between those two people and say they're the same thing is like no 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 this one is whatever yes there, there is a there is a line between the two things but it's not they're not the same thing you can't fold that line yes. in on itself yes you have to slide your dial all the way along between them you can't jump between the two of them and, yeah. and, and fold them together in that way you have to keep a sense of proportion yeah because otherwise everything flattens out otherwise every instance of minor sexism is the same as as you know women being kept in a cellar right it can't all be the same you have to give things their due emphasis yeah and their due proportion because otherwise you lose a sense of scale you've got to think of it like volume yeah because if you move maximum minimum volume together as you said it's right in the middle and yeah there's there's so much more to it yeah and it it it, it means that it truth goes missing yeah because it's you know this is sexism that's true but that is also sexism that's also true you need to have that yeah volume that dynamic in it yeah for it to be meaningful uh i want to i don't want to skip over the fact that you're writing a pilot for your show and i think that's fascinating your first well i don't know if it was your first reaction but it's the first reaction you told me which is i'm not a character yeah i don't play a character 
And well, I don't write myself as a character. Right. That's the challenge for me. Right. So, is there? So, what's what's your solution to that? Because there's things that we could uh, discuss that you could go in, but I'm curious to know what's the solution you have at the moment. So, yeah, it's sort of this odd thing of like it's either an admirable lack of egotism or it is a despicable lack of self-awareness, right. <laughs> possibly both. Um, <laughs> but the way that I uh, am approaching it at the moment is because the character in the show is me at a younger age, I have a little bit of perspective on what oh, yeah. was dumb about me then, like where I was rigid and where I was, you know. And, and then in that in that process of writing down these character traits as a character, as a, as a crib sheet, I realise all these things about myself now as well that have carried over and that are still true. Is that good? Um, I mean, it's probably good for me <laughs> does it feel good no sometimes it's good though isn't it sometimes it's like oh i'm a bit like this and it's it's a bit of a relief isn't it to kind of know those things and and be able to deal with them of course there's times when you look and you think oh so one of the things that i realized is what a liar i was for somebody who believes in truth who was brought up to be very honest who is not uh deliberately deceptive so the the scene that i'm writing at the beginning is backstage at the shelf which is i'm backstage i get a call from my dad it's in the break and i'm on in the second half i've done my solo show dad calls me and says ali are you free i say no i'm not i'm I finished my show, but I'm doing this extra show. I'm very excited. He says, everything's fine. Let me know when you're done. In such a way that I know everything is not fine. So I I go to the back stairs, backstage. I call him five minutes later and I say, I'm done on stage. I'm finished. What What's up? And he tells me, you know. Sorry, had you been on stage? No. Right. But I just needed to know because I yeah. knew that there was something wrong. Yeah. There was something in the tone of his voice. And, and for people who aren't performers, the most fragile part of performing is just before and just after and especially in between. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I call him back. I say, I'm done. Um, what, what's up? What's happened? And he says, you know, we, we, went, we went in to check out that thing. We got the results back. I'd been at the appointment with the checkup and we got the results back and... You know, your mother has cancer. And I said, okay. Um, and then Adam Richard waved at me. And I waved at him, like smiling. Yeah. And I said, what's the prognosis? And he said, we don't know. It doesn't look great. And I said, okay. Thank you for telling me. And I hung up. And you said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. And I went on and then I did my set. And writing that out, that is, there was just so many layers of falsehood there that at the time I just thought, I'm looking after everyone. Right. Like I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was in the, morally in the right, and maybe I was. But I, it was almost completely unconscious. But writing it out, you think, fuck, she's a liar. Right. Like she is deceiving it. She has such a compartmentalized life there that that at one point 
I told my boyfriend at the time that I needed to go to a gig. I pulled out of the gig, said I needed to look after mum. I told my dad that I was going to see my boyfriend at the time and I went and sat in a park. Okay, hang on a sec. So I, two th- there's two different things there. Yep. One is I think I, I remember that, Alice, and I like her very much. I think you're being a bit hard <laughs> on her. I think in that situation where you have so much that's going on, you, I, I think it's actually more interesting that you were able to compartmentalise all of that. Yeah. Like that is that's survival. That is professionalism. <laughs> it is. Yeah. You, and like... I've done gigs where someone turns up and you're out the back and they come in and and they're struggling with something and often, more than not, it's not that big a deal. But they come in full of angst and anxiety and, you know, without naming names, there was a a comedian who you would have performed with over the years who went through a really bad period in their life and they went really sexist in their material and really awful and that person would come backstage and they were quite clearly in pain and I had empathy for them because the cheese had slipped off their cracker but they would (laughs) fuck up that night because you now took it all on you were the one like when they went off and then had to go on stage it's like you had the coffee shakes going fuck what just happened here you know they offloaded that emotional so weight on you I don't think that's like Technically, that's lying, but that is also in that really vulnerable period. Your dad calls up, does a really bad job with his Morse code. Oh, yeah, no, nothing's wrong. Uh, You have to know because that's going to be in the back of your head. Funnily enough, I'm guessing knowing the truth allowed you to then, right, I'll put that here and now I can do this. Yes. And so technically it's lying, but I think the... Putting it in little boxes to do with later, I think, is actually really impressive. And I think that's a thing to look back on. And then, of course, lying to the boyfriend and lying to the father to go and have some you time. Well, yeah. that's, like, good. Yeah, that's but it's that thing. thing of just it, that, as a character, like, trying to think of that as a character, that person as a character, not just me, not just trying to keep everyone happy, not just trying to look after everyone. As a character, that is a spy or a Dexter or it's one of those farces where someone's always walking in one Mm. door as someone exits the other and you're trying to keep all these plates spinning and that as a um, kind of a a motivating set of pressures for Mm. a narrative structure, that is interesting. Yeah. Because the moment they said, you know, we'd love to see it if you wanted to write this pilot, I was like, I'm not interesting. I'm not like, (laughs) I'm not an infomaniac with a drug habit. Like I, I don't have these... You know, I don't have identity issues. I don't, or certainly not ones that I talk about on stage. I'm, I'm not interesting as a character. But that process of kind of writing out that scene was like, oh, yeah, this can work as a character. Oh, yeah, definitely. And also, uh, you know, by being the person in the centre of a lot of things who feels that way about themselves allows you to populate your universe with all sorts of characters that you're pushing against and defining like the interesting question that comes from you lying to your boyfriend at the time and your dad at the time tells me well you had to do that 
so what's going on with the relationship on both sides that you came to that conclusion that it's just going to be easier to yeah just lie to check out and go and hang out in a park and how to tell this story in a way that doesn't expose my family or ridicule my family and, yeah. and that, that, you know, how much do I fictionalise it? How do I get the emotional truth across without necessarily... Um, so I ended up talking to uh, Kumail Nanjiani. Oh, yeah. So he wrote a movie about his wife, yeah. Emily, and her... She had eight days in a coma. Yeah. And I asked him uh, whether he had any regrets about the writing process anything that he wished he had done differently and he said we wrote Emily's parents for what the script needed they weren't themselves right but there are um there are scenes in which I basically transcribed conversations that I had with my mum and I regret that right because she felt too exposed that's a hard thing isn't it like it's hard to know how much of someone else's life that you're related to that you share when they didn't make the decision to go on stage? Yeah, my brother has asked never to be in my stand-up. So this is the, like, right. he, you, you think, you know, I wrote this show Savage about my mum. My twin, my twin brother does not appear in that show at all or in any of my stand-up. That's fascinating. I've never realised that yeah. until now. Yeah, I never make a joke about Henry because he asked not to be in that show. So then what do I do in the if, when I'm writing a script? Do I have the Henry character appear and then ask not to be in the show and then write him out? Or is he always just in the background in focus? Do I only ever hear him in phone calls? Do I write him as a girl? Do I write him as a cousin? Like, what do I... How do I navigate that? You know, is it a... Is it a meta thing where this is you writing the pilot about the show and you just see emails from him that are reminding you, <laughs> don't put me in this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just, is it just text just messages? Or is he only ever in, in background scenes or is he recast every episode with a different character in the same costume? Like any number <laughs> of that. things yeah. uh, that you can do. <laughs> you know, you can have like, uh, you know, uh, Tiffany Stevenson turn up in one episode as your brother, <laughs> yeah. and just you just accept it. You just accept you know? it. Uh, that's very UK, isn't it? Like when you watch yeah. theatre, and it's like a, a white man has a black father, and, yeah, yeah. and you, you just oh yeah, it's theatre. Like we're all here for we're pretendies. We're going to suspend that yeah. disbelief. Speaking of which, Bridgerton, oh, I loved that. Oh really? I haven't seen Bridgerton. I would recommend it. Right. Um, it is not dumber than James Bond. Right. <laughs> Like it is, Put that on a poster. It's, you know, it is it is dumb, escapist fantasy. Right. Uh, it's for women by women. Um, you know, pe when people talk about women's literature, they don't talk about romance novels, which are the most popular genre of book yeah. by a long way. And they are not on any bestseller lists because they're not considered legitimate. Right. But they're serving a purpose. They're a fu functional thing. And some of them are brilliant. Some of them are dumb. Yeah. But one of the great things about Bridgerton is that it's not based in the Regency period. Right. It is set in, and you can tell this immediately because you see, A, the costumes are slightly off, B, they've got this uh, cross-racial casting that they kind of vaguely explain five episodes in, but it doesn't matter because what it is is it's set in a Regency period that is based on a hundred years of romance novels set in the Regency period. It's fan fiction about fan fiction about fan fiction. Oh, right, right. And the fact that they have this colourblind casting is 
pivotal to understanding that at first glance. This is not meant to be the Regency period. The fact that these characters are behaving incredibly anachronistically, that they're like sassy, empowered young women, you know, completely rejecting the mores with which they would have been brought up, like all of that stuff is irrelevant because it's this heightened fantasy world that has been built by collaboration between women over, like, decades and decades and decades... And it's genius. And right. It's, it's like it is, a, it is a brilliant thing. In the same way as we believe when we see an action movie that men can dodge bullets. Right, yes. That you can just run away from a machine gun, that you can t- take <laughs> being punched by a car off a building yeah. like, and then just keep walking. In the same way, they, you have this heightened sense of disbelief and this suspension of disbelief. Um, and, you know, with all of the kind of the problematicness of, of various scenes in that thing, I think it is... It's a really beautiful thing to watch because something that is that popular and that unacknowledged for so long going into the mainstream, I think, is a sign of something. It is a sign of something. And I wonder if there is going to be, like, is this exciting at the moment and in, uh, like, ten years' time that's going to be how I feel about Marvel comics making things popular <laughs> you it's go possible. oh no this was a genre that we were all over here having a really good time with and i, I, I wonder if sometimes when th- when something becomes popular like properly mainstream popular for a brief period of time it's really exciting and then that's the moment when it starts to lose its innovation. Yeah, so you have this this period where I think this happened with comic books as well, where it's yeah. seen as a sort of a dirty pleasure or a naughty thing mm. or an I- illegitimate pleasure, yeah. something to conceal and to hide and to uh, be ashamed of or yeah. embarrassed about, and then it achieves this sort of level of legitimacy. Um, you know, I wrote my undergraduate um, thesis on Georgette Heyer, who's sort of the originator of this kind of new Regency stuff back in the early part of, of the... 20th century um and it's just such a a fascinating thing if it does become mainstream and embarrassing because mainstream then yeah um if there will ever be a point where people can just say oh i like this thing and that be a neutral statement right rather than a statement of some sort of coolness or lack of coolness or identity right it's interesting because this is uh it's it's always fascinating when suddenly you're hearing a lot about any show these days because there's so many shows like normally if i hear something you you either know about it because it's in your interest range or you've never heard of it but i have not seen one episode of bridgerton but i have heard about it across many platforms yeah and so it's obviously getting some major cut through well, it's this interesting thing because I think in the same way with, as with comic books, the genre as a whole is represented slightly disingenuously, what the appeal of it is. I mean, maybe I should ask you what you think the appeal of romance novels or historical romance novels is. Uh, well, to be honest, I've never read one. So I'm guessing that it's heightened emotions and a lot of uh, character interplay that's what i've always thought that was tell me if i'm wrong with this as well that's what is going on in the foreground and usually there's uh it's against a landscape of 
big dramatic things happening in the background. So that it allows you to kind of focus on the minutiae of these people dealing with that. And then it's, uh, you know, it's all... It's all like it's not dissimilar to an action movie in that regard. It's all heightened, and it's people trying to maneuver around, and that's kind of the idea. It's, it's, yeah, it's that. That is not a bad uh, summation of it. I think so. The Regency period as a kind of a fictional period. The 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 rules of the Regency period. Young ladies, your job is to get married. Yes. So that gives you room within the narrative to really focus on relationships good relationships bad relationships what you want in a man uh and then you bring in usually quite a flawed hero right um who's very you know appealing in various ways he's probably very attractive but he's tortured in some way he's got a deep character flaw right is there sorry to interrupt is there a is there a character that you could point to that like it's not it's not Heathcliff and Wuthering Heights. Is that would be off the mark, wouldn't it? Is there? A... That'd be. I mean, uh, Darcy in right. Pride and Prejudice. So right. you have a few sort of legitimised romances, yeah. um, but but they're sort of considered literature. Um, but yeah, he's got a deep character flaw. Yeah, and the process of. Often they get married or consummate, like depending on what level of rating these books have. Often they get the getting together bit out of the way quite quickly. It's oh, not really? like a rom com. Right. They'll get married very early on, or they'll they'll sort of like a third of the way in, and the rest of it is how to make it work. Oh, how to resolve the issue? How he comes to you and you go to him? How do you? And, the, like, obviously there's this background of, like, an incredibly passionate sexual connection. Yeah. But then how do you, how do you fix it? How do you solve it? How do you oh, make it work? Right. Well, of course this is appealing. Yeah. Like, this is exactly what everyone's looking like. I can imagine someone reading this and looking at their dumbass husband on the lounge going, yep. I wish he'd just show a little bit of uh, need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so you have this kind of undeniable connection. They're married. They can't get unmarried. They're connected. They yeah. or they have this, you know, whatever it is. Obviously, Bond. really overwrought circumstances that consistently bring them back together. Right. So they have to figure out how to make it work. You're yeah. stuck in this. How do you make it work? And then you see also in the periphery. Often the peripheral characters are very important because you see their relationships not working. Yes. You see them failing or being unhappy or just sort of being pragmatic about it, getting married for other reasons. Yeah. Um, and so as a kind of a, a playground for women to explore relational dynamics, it's really sort of unparalleled. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, anyway, I find it. I find them fascinating. And that is to say, like, 90% of everything is crap. Most of them are garbage. But right. there are some really bloody good ones, and I can give you a reading list if you want. Oh, yeah, no, I'd be, you should definitely give me a reading list. I would, uh, I'm always open to new things, so that would be fantastic. Well, there's uh, a listener to our podcast, uh, a UK author, Sarah Bennett, and I said to Sarah uh, via email, I said, we, we should have you on the podcast. And she was like, oh, I don't know if... You guys would be into, uh, you know, the, the work that I do. And it's like, well, maybe we'll get you in and we'll interview her via Zoom. <laughs> Are you that. listening, Sarah? Email me. Listen, this is a direct invitation. <laughs> Here's someone who knows what they're talking about and I'll be totally up for it as well. That's, uh, that's fascinating. So Bridgerton uh, is updating that uh, genre and adding some, uh, you know, 
2020-2021 kind of uh, yeah modern story. aesthetic but it always had fairly I think it was written in the 2000s so it's, right. it was already a fairly modern take on this genre which is sort of odd because you do see these books evolve over the century that they've yeah. been sort of increasingly building on one another the, the 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 tropes and the archetypes and the things that happen in this world built on a world um develop so you know the early sort of mills and boonsy ones they'd never yeah. have sex or georgette Hare, they'd never have sex right. or, or if anything it would be very coyly implied right and nowadays they tend to be quite explicit from fairly early on <laughs> right let's get to it yeah the, the things like that the moral landscape shifts which yeah. is really funny because they're all set in the same period and yes. it's a short period of history as well in which you had really interesting political dynamics ha- happening where you had the aristocracy increasingly impoverished um, you had a merchant class rising up so you had cross class tension and people marrying across classes because the aristocracy couldn't survive without bringing in merchant money so you could have like entrepreneurialism was sort of looked right. down upon as a trade thing but was also incredibly necessary and then you also had um the beginning of the idea that you could marry for love marching alongside the idea that you should only ever marry for uh familial and land reasons to make a good alliance for the for the bloodline and for the yeah for the financial side of things that's what i'm hanging out for so there's these like really yeah these fascinating (laughs) tensions that are happening at all at the same time and it's quite a short period of history but that's why it's so interesting to set things there because you have strict rules that are constantly being broken. Right. Okay. And so what are the uh, so what are the uh, rules that are being broken in the story? So um, cuz I want to get to this theory that I have that once something becomes self-aware, like a genre becomes self-aware and becomes postmodern and becomes sort of uh, pulled apart and put back together again, I for, I have a theory that that's where innovation Stops like oh. you can make things as good as they were, but the innovation is everything's kind of being done. And is that where this genre is, or is this are they still kind of telling the stories in a very straightforward manner and they haven't started coming in and subverting the genre? So it's fascinating because all genre writing has this quality that is one of the reasons why sort of great literature looks down on it, which is that you're working with uh, prefab parts to a certain degree, that you have certain tropes that need to be fulfilled. You know how a genre thing is going to end. You know that, you know, in a murder mystery, the murderer will be found it will be discovered by the detective there'll yeah. be this unpacking process and 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 there's sort of a, a comfort and a satisfaction in knowing how the shape of the narrative is yeah. going to work the interest is in how they play the game right the interest is in how they use these these prefab parts in in original ways or swap them out or, or surprise you while still satisfying you because it's required that they satisfy you yeah, that's the deal. We've that's made. the deal. We're, we've made this. You know what it is, and we're going to fulfil. But but you're not going to watch a James Bond movie where he dies a quarter of the way in, and then just stays dead, and it's just his funeral for the rest of the, the movie. Like, what the like, fuck happened here? Yeah, just everyone's eulogy for the rest. Like that's gonna that will. You, can you imagine the rage? But you can have innovative James Bond movies within that format. If you think about Casino Royale, that really yes. kind of 
changed changed up the game while still giving you these James Bondy things. Yeah, all yeah. the little twists and and it gave you all the beats, but just yeah. in a slightly you know what we've seen the Bourne movies and we need to update yeah, kind of way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it gave it this psychological edge, and that that was new for the James Bond movies yeah. because his his psychology had always been opaque. He'd yes. had this kind of yeah. So you can, I think have these innovations that are still interesting right. even though like even going back to the Georgette Heyer novels um which I read as a young teen my mum used to wrap them in easter egg wrappers because oh. they were like little sweeties oh. so they still smell like chocolate and that's so uh, cute so she'd yeah because the covers were always like very overwrought right and romance novelsy but they're, they're like if you've ever read Jeeves and Worcester Georgette Heyer is like the girl version of that such beautiful light witty Gorgeous writing. It's, like, delicious. Um, uh, But, yeah, even in those books, you have heroines who read romance novels and react to them. Uh, There's one called Sylvester, where the whole central issue of it is that she has written a romance novel in which he is the villain because he has these really distinctive eyebrows. Right. And she's published it anonymously... And then they get thrown together and whether to reveal or not to reveal that she's basically slandered his name. Right. And he's got a custody battle for his nephew and all of this stuff. Amazing. But he's been sort of <laughs> defamed by her. Yeah. He's genius. But that's such a postmodern yes. thing to do. And this is like in the 1920s, I think. Right. Yeah. That's so. great. The uh, I'm curious about the... You know the the way things can kind of change. Uh, you know, and you can see it reflected in a work. Uh, when I went home to Adelaide, uh, Mum, you know, my, I, my poor Mum had not seen anyone in like ten, eleven months, and when I got there, it was all the words, and I just acquiesced to anything <laughs> she wanted to do because it, no worries. And one of the things she wanted to do was she wanted to watch the nineteen forty nine Little Women. Mm-hmm. And then we watched the 2019 Little Women. Ah. I'm so glad we did because I had a really good time and it was fascinating to be able to compare the two. But the fascinating thing was, weirdly, the character of Amy in the first movie, which I think was Elizabeth Taylor, who, you know, wants to marry and all of that kind of stuff. And it was, uh, you know, like an interesting, good character, but... You know, probably in some ways, specifically up against Joe, was a you know not as appealing. Yes, you know, Joe's yeah, she, she's sort of the neutral against which Joe is set. Yeah, but then I found in the 2019 version, the Flo- the Florence Pugh version of Amy, I found to be the MVP uh-huh. of the movie, and it was, and that was like Joe was still great, but there was just there was something new and there was different angles and there was a little bit more vulnerability that probably hadn't been applied to the character then. You know, back then I felt like in that movie version everything was a little bit more, this is this person, this is this person, this is this person. And in this, you know, uh, Florence just kind of brought some extra layers and I think the writing had, you know, Greta Gerwig's writing just gave her more. So I found her to be the most fascinating character and the way she interacted with everyone? It is fascinating now because of the way that feminism has gone over the last 20 or 30 years. You, you see this division between uh, serious women yes. who want a career and women who want a family. Yes. And I saw a stand-up 
uh, just a, a short clip on YouTube and I wish I could give you the proper reference point. But she just got up and she said, I want to get married and have kids. And the reaction from the audience was incredible. What was it? Like... Were people into it? Were people yes. Yes, right. Huge, like this right. thing, oh, she finally, she said it. Like right. she finally said it. Like that, that there's this feeling among intellectual young women that that is not a legitimate desire. That, that that's not something that you ought to want. That that's a retrograde thing. The idea that perpetuating the species, building other human beings and bringing them up to be well-balanced is, is somehow like, like animalistic almost. Yes, yeah, it's that, out. Yeah. What uh, what's a hot? What's not hot? That's not hot. Yeah, that it's déclassé or somehow <laughs> low, and that you have these like unenlightened women who want that, but right. enlightened women sort of do it on the side, maybe, or try yeah. and keep it a kind of a, almost a secret. You completely separate that out from your professional life oh, because yeah. you know I've, I've experienced that with some of my friends where they're almost apologising. Yeah, and you're, I'm like, a. We're not married and this is not my kid, so I don't quite understand why you are apologising to me. But that is an interesting... Like, it's already... They're downplaying it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, here we go. <laughs> so that then... That, that I think that feeds into a little bit of this idea that romance novels are a secret guilty pleasure. That the right. idea of focusing on that or wanting that or, or, or being interested in it even is somehow shameful. And I think this is where modern feminism has fallen down quite badly which is that it's been very good at opening male spaces to women like it really has over a period of relatively short period of time we've opened a lot of male spaces, and there's a lot of you know room to go you know there's still plenty of room to go but given you know like 100 years ago we didn't have the vote like we've done well let's let's acknowledge the progress that we've made while acknowledging that there is still progress to be made where it's fallen down i think a lot is in valuing traditionally female qualities that the idea that you know a a man so my twin brother was the primary carer for his daughter for a year and a half um now they're going to swap over but that is a victory for the woman right that she gets to now go back to work and and that the man is now in this submissive home role right that is not a, a victory for the man right you know that's not seen as a as a a step up for a man, that's a scene as him deliberately taking himself down a notch. As a feminist, he's looking after his, you know, he's giving his wife this opportunity to do this incredible thing of, of going back to work and, and achieving her goals in that forum rather than him having an incredible opportunity to shape a human being in this yeah. most vulnerable flowering of her that she won't even remember, but it'll be the foundation of her ability to relate to other human beings. In 20 years, this is the infrastructure of humanity that he now has an opportunity to be part of that he wouldn't have been allowed to do 15 years ago it would have been seen as incredibly awful like it's just a that we don't value those things as they ought to be valued that's only seen as a victory for her and not as a victory for him is that because it's a victory for her because she's earning money and everything comes back to what you earn and comes back to that kind of thing because the legitimacy is bestowed by masculine status which is measured by money yes but it's not like you can't measure the value to society of well-balanced human beings. Right. It's not like, I mean, that's 20 years down the road, but it's like building a highway. That stuff yeah. will pay off yeah. to somebody who's not going to have a nervous breakdown and hit their boyfriend. Like, right. 
yeah, this is this is real stuff. And yeah. if you put any if you put any attention into measuring it, it would be measurable. It's such a good point because uh, so I, I, a close friend of mine, he and his uh, partner have a child. He's been the person who stayed at home. I can't begin to tell you how, for some reason, halfway through what you were saying, that felt so alien to me because I know guys who do that and I have never at any point thought anything other than I actually went back to work <laughs> like, but you know it's, it's important to look outside of yourself and remember these things but the only reason that I'd even had an inkling that that kind of view was still taken is that uh, there's a his partner is from New Zealand and they need to go home for family reasons and there has been as we know laws keep changing left right and center when you can when you can't go and they were just about to go like we're at the airport and the laws changed and they had to go oh, home gosh. but anyway uh the latest news that he told me is that they've the the mum and the daughter can go to new zealand but he's not allowed to even though he's been the one at home for the last two years as the primary caregiver and what? And he's had to kind of he's had some interesting blowback from that, you know. Yeah. And it's uh, it's insane, isn't it? Like there, there's just so many things in the world, and I know this is such a blanket statement, but there's just so many things where something like that, where you think, really, like is that is that still a thing? Well, you look at um, just the va- the va- like go back to the value of these kind of traditionally feminine spheres, giving them value and and opening them up to both genders, and. Um, if, if you ever listen to the Dollop podcast, oh yeah, yeah. so it's a, it's an American history podcast, and it sort of tells you all these bizarre stories from American history. People who've behaved in extraordinarily yeah. weird and and out there ways, you know, who've, who've started revolutions or driven tanks into banks or driven trains off the edge of piers or yeah. you know these kind of you know deeply unbalanced people who've done terrible things quite often really terrible things i've I've been on a couple of times and been really felt quite embarrassed as dave tells you stuff about your own country that yeah. you go i didn't know about rum ducks almost inevitably <laughs> almost inevitably when they begin the story of somebody who's gone off the fucking deep end right um it begins with he had a bad relationship with his mother. Right. Like, or yes. his mum died, or his mum left, or, like, these things that we don't... Like, that we cannot... It's almost a trope. Yeah. That, that if you... Like, not necessarily that if you have a bad relationship with your mother, you'll go off the deep end, but it, it certainly all the ones that go off the deep end... There doesn't seem to be a single one who goes off the deep end who's like, oh, yeah, he had a fine home life. Yeah. His mum was great. That we can't... We that, can't work out what happened to it. Yeah, 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 exactly. That there is this clear, this clear correlation that we just have paid zero attention to. Yeah. While, you know, every therapist you'll ever talk to will be like, oh, yeah, that, that was because when you were four, this happened. Yeah, you go, oh, wow. You're like, really oh, that's why that. I messed up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, uh, getting back to the genre, do, is it uh, a 50-50 split with writers? Is it more women? Is it more men? Is it kind of looked upon a bit weird when a man writes in this... Uh... In romance novels, yeah. it is extremely female-dominated. Yes, Almost entirely. It is women writing for women. And if men are writing it, most often they will write under a female pseudonym. Right. It is women's literature. Uh, that's what I thought. But I didn't know if 
you know, in recent times, suddenly you're getting some men riding because everything needs to be, you know, under the banner of everything needs to be equal. And now men are writing women's literature. Do you know there, what I there mean? There are some... There are some uh, uh, f- Male uh, romance novelists, yeah. uh, including uh, you might know him. He's a, a comedy fan in Adelaide, Dean Mays. Oh right, he writes Australian right. uh, romance yep. novels, and he's he's also a, a nurse, right? A neonatal care nurse. So he's in two female-dominated industries and wow. kind of holding his own there. Yeah. Um, but it is yeah the vast majority is by women for women. Yeah. And what's the what's the opinion if a man comes in and starts? trying it is there a little bit of get off our turf i look i don't know actually i don't know because i'm not sort of in among the kind of the politics of the writers i know there is politics among the writers i know that there is definitely uh politics about race there's politics about representation there's politics about who gets to write queer stories and for whom uh, because there is this subgenre of of queer stories that are being written about two men by women for women, right. whether that's an empowering thing or a, an a, a right. oppressive thing, right. uh, whether you're a, that's a legitimate, that's sort of a, a, an off-branching of online fan fiction tropes, actually. Yep. So the, this is super fascinating kind of plethora of influences that pour into this very condensed um, format and, and appear in all these interesting ways. So if... Uh, this might be putting you on the spot, and we can we can do this at another point. But if you were to uh, give us three examples of if someone's never read this genre before, these would be your three favourite. Would uh, uh, was Sylvester one of them? Uh, oh, I would say Venetia, Georgette yep. Heyer, Venetia. Um, as a young teenager, the two lead characters romance each other by quoting poetry to one another, right, and capping each other's quotes and. For me, that opened up because I, you know, I didn't recognise these poems, and I'd go and I'd find them, and they'd be incredible, you know, if we had but world enough and time, or uh, since I, uh, since there's no help for it, come let us kiss and part. Nay, I have done. You get no more of me. Like these incredible poems that run throughout the whole text. I would say, definitely that. I love the idea of you at high school as a young teen- teenager, like holding up, you know, like a male pornographic magazine but it's hiding <laughs> this romance novel on the inside on the inside so i'd say uh yeah v- venetia for sure um ooh, the if you want if you're if you're still wary about entering the genre entirely the lord peter whimsy series by dorothy l sayers which are ostensibly crime novels oh right uh, but have a romance that runs underneath that is extremely beautiful right and then why not read bridgerton as an example of the kind of the modern romance Where it is and or, or and possibly lois mcmaster bujold all those those are set in sci-fi worlds um, oh right cordelia's honor she writes lois mcmaster bujold writes incredibly well realized not young female characters. Right. Which you don't realise how rare that is until you come across it. Yeah. How old are they? Like, what? 30s, 40s. Yeah. You wow. know, you just don't see that as a lead yeah. character and, and that, they're, in they're, <laughs> that they're brilliant at, in the way that that kind of woman is brilliant. Right. That their kind of patience and pragmatism and endurance and stoicism and kindness are strengths yeah and that then they also get to have a romantic life would you ever write one 
Have you written one? So in the last oh. post, in the last post universe, my daily satirical news podcast set in an alternate dimension, there is an ad section. Okay? There is an ad section in which a, a novelist uh, of unknown gender called Dancy Lagarde will every four days publish a new romance novel. Great. And I write the blurbs for that. Great. So, uh, Sorry, every four days. Every four days, wow. yeah. In so there's, yeah, there's like fifty. I, I think somebody did a wiki page of them. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I can I can find and read one if it's not yeah, too yeah, self indulgent. No, um, not at all. I asked, but the uh, is it something that while well, you're looking that up, is it something that you would like? I, there's always been a part of me that's like, oh, I'd love to write a comic or I'd love to write a graphic novel and then it's just you know it's a it's a proper skill and it's a proper talent and I've never even really attempted it but it's always in the back of my head and is it is it possibly the thing that will always be in the back of your head or are you going to disappear for three months and then go (laughs) ta-da Well, I his, think his at some point, I, I think the the success of Dancy uh, was such that I may have to write right. some Dancy Lagarde novel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so this one's about the dim menagerie. And I'm going to read it to you because it contains one of my favourite comedy lines that I've ever written. Yes. This is where my absence of imposter syndrome is because I would never have dared to do something this self-indulgent before. <laughs> mm-hmm. The Dim Menagerie is a violent, sexy, and occasionally violently sexy instalment in Lagarde's best-selling series of late Edwardian, early Victorian period romance thrillers with a supernatural twist. Set in the mean streets of a rapidly industrialising London, The Dim Menagerie sweeps you into a world of coal and corsets. Devon is the bastard son of a duke. Forging his own way in the emerging world of commerce. Half vampire, half Victorian doctor, he's got his hands full figuring out the implications of germ theory while lusting for the blood of his patients. But there is something missing. Something missing, that is, until he meets a lady being set upon by footpads in a dark alleyway and rescues her with his sword stick. Violet is a sassy suffragette with an anachronistic vocabulary and an elasticated corset. And amnesia. She doesn't need a man, but she can't remember why. <laughs> Well, you need to write (laughs) What are you doing here? So, yeah, I I just love it It's so dumb, it's so fun Uh, That would be amazing (laughs) Also, great title Thank you, thank you Yeah, they always have a sort of a um, Something to do with the level of light (laughs) Going on So, yeah, it's the, the dim menagerie or legs in the gloaming or right. night passions or, you know, they're yeah. all, that's a lot. Yeah, that's so great. many, yeah, so many subgenres. It's fascinating. Oh, I love it. I love it. I definitely want to uh, check out uh, a couple of those books. They sound fascinating, actually. The, yeah. the sci-fi one. Like, I didn't even... Like, that was... Of course there would be a sci-fi one. But oh, yeah. Was, when you said that, there was a part of me going, what? Oh, it's a really good... I think that's a really good entry point uh, yeah. for it. And, they, and and she's proper. Like, she does proper sci-fi as well. Really, right. like, interested in the technology and the implications of the technology yeah. on people in that way that, like, Golden Age sci-fi writers can be a little bit... Um, uh, emotionless, yes. a little bit flat in their affect, yes. that the characters behave in ways that people don't actually behave. Yeah. Um, it's funny, there is there are certain writers that are beloved that I discovered after reading some of their books, I enjoyed reading the synopsis more <laughs> just because they're a bit dry. Yeah, they're very... And, and it's hard to kind of 
you know, when someone's touted as a genius and has had this influence on so many aspects yeah. of the genre that you love and then you're reading it and you go oh my god this is a little bit difficult it was years years ago when i interviewed grant morrison he said uh philip k dick mm. i was talking to him about philip k dick he said i just find it really hard to read and there was like this emotional brick lifted off my shoulder. I was like, oh, no, I found him difficult as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for someone who's so that. influential. Yeah. He's like reading a blueprint. Yeah. For, or watching a, a transcription of a chess game. You're yeah. like, okay, I, yep. Yeah. I can see how this could be exciting. Oh, okay, <laughs> no, I understand all these ideas. I get it. This is great. I'll just read the synopsis yeah. and, and and bask in the ideas. In the in the genius of... Yeah, so, for example, one of the technologies Lois McMaster-Bujol posits for her space opera is the idea of a, a uterine replicator. So right. the idea that you could just decide to have a baby yep. and put it in a, a canister and come back in nine months and then you have a baby. Well, that doesn't... So what does that do to society? Right. What does that do to the role of women? What does that do to the role of men? What does that do to um, politics about uh, inheritance? Yeah. What does that do to everything? Right. And how do people behave when this is an option? Yeah. Great. And that does not sound too far out of the I mean, realm they, of possibility, right? I did this thing for BBC Radio uh, called Stranger Than Science Fiction in which right. that technology actually exists now. Right. They're doing it with lambs um, and they're hoping that it will help with premature births. Right. But as with all uh, incredibly groundbreaking technology, this could be incredibly utopian or it could be brutally dystopian. Yeah. You could uh, have this thing where anyone who's who's going to have a terrible miscarriage can put the baby in a in one of these bags and have it treated um you know kind of treatments that would damage the mother irreparably can be done safely in these bags right or you could have corporations putting babies in these bags in their hundreds and making clone soldiers like yeah that's not going to happen, he says, uh, without any conviction. Yeah, or, or it all of a sudden becomes, you know, uh, an imperative thing if you have a child that's going to be born with a birth defect to put them in right. one of these bags and perfect them because right. you're not allowed to have imperfect children anymore or, right. you know, all of these things. And, then, um, and what do we agree is imperfect as well? Yeah, right? it, you know, these, these, there are massive implications yeah. for this kind of technology. Um and fascinating implications as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like that's a whole other topic. Uh, we should discuss that again. You have to come back. Uh, I that was will. great. And also, thank you for introducing this genre. As I said, it's it's one that I've always known about. And I guess, like, by the very uh, existence of what it is, it is not one that ever calls out to you and says, hey, you should come and read us. It's a bit like, no, you stay over there. You enjoy your shit. Yeah. Um, so... Look. I will watch the shit out of a Fast and the Furious movie. Right. So Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally up for stuff. <laughs> uh, where can people find you and uh, how do people get on to your Patreon? Uh, Patreon.com slash Alice Fraser is I, the front page of that. You don't have to pay to access it or anything, but it's kind of a one-stop shop for all of my stand-up specials and podcast things. Yeah. And I also do a weekly tea salon there yeah. where we, uh, we will have a nice little chat. Yeah. And are you, you, are you still doing the... 
daily? No, that's now monthly. The last post right. is monthly. I've just launched a, a spin-off of the Bugle podcast, which is weekly. It's called The Gargle, and it is a satirical news show without any politics because right. I got sick of making jokes about Trump. Yeah, <laughs> that's a problem, isn't that, it? Yeah, I love, I love the process of writing satirical comedy, and I was like, is there a way that I can sneakily do it about not anything else not these people like just stupid people saying stupid people stupid things to make even more stupid people angry like this new yeah i got a little bit worn out i got burned out on on politics but and after a while there's only so many angles yeah before you know i think you saw it with things like uh like snl you know, you, yeah. you'd watch SNL and you're going, this is a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy and it's not necessarily your fault. Well, A, there's so many other people doing it. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to think of anything original to say. And B, I think satire at its best is razor sharp and precise. Right. And when you have these grotesque giants stamping through the landscape, yeah. what they invite is big swings and clumsy comedy. It's just yeah. like, oh, he's orange. Right, like, yeah. it, what's up with his head? Yeah, what's up with his head? He's an idiot. Like, it doesn't, um, it doesn't bring out the best in comedians. I don't think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's well, it's hard because it's like they come with the bullseyes painted on them already, yeah. and you're trying to look in between the gaps, and it's you're trying to figure out something interesting or original or insightful to say, and they're just there, you know, ba 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 in but your it's, eyes. It's also hard for the audience because they're seeing the bullseyes as well. Yeah. And so then if you try to find you, a way You don't through, actually want to say what everyone's thinking, do right. you? Right. <laughs> like. You don't. Uh, yeah, no. Oh, well, that's great. Well, with all of that stuff uh, that you're doing, thank you for finding time to come and hang out here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you to Alice Fraser and Rove McManus for joining me on the podcast today. If you enjoyed today's podcast and you have the time, please leave us a top review at Apple Podcasts. If you know anyone who'd enjoy our vibe over here, please invite them along to join in the fun. A quick reminder for anyone in Wodonga on the 11th or Canberra on the 12th, I will be in town hosting the Sydney Comedy Festival Showcase. You can find tickets over at the Sydney Comedy Festival website. And if you do come along... uh, Come up, say hello after the gig. It's always a real treat to meet people who listen to the podcast. And finally, over at my site, justinhamilton.com.au, you can find a new Dispatches from the Fury Road blog called Universal Eye. It is about a three-minute read, and it's probably perfect if you're looking for a brief excursion from wherever you may be at this precise moment in time. And today we're finishing with a quote from Jane Austen. Seldom, very seldom, does complete truth belong to any human disclosure. Seldom can it happen that something is not a little disguised or a little mistaken. Until then. in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com planning for your next trip 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.